I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, hello. I'm Susanna Constantine, and this is my wardrobe malfunction. Can you believe it? This is episode number 75. If you haven't joined us before, then you've got so much to catch up on. If you have, then hopefully you'll know by now that you're in good company. Thank you all for joining us. Right, on to today's special guest. I've admired her for years, but have been lucky enough to get to know her recently and now love her more than ever. It's the legendary model, muse and photographer, Patty Boyd. So, let's grab the handles, open my wardrobe doors, and find out what's inside. Today, I'm with someone who I can safely say is one of the most celebrated fashion icons, not just of her generation in the 60s, but of all the generations that followed. It's model, photographer, best-selling author and podcaster, Patty Boyd. At last, Patty, we're here and we're doing it. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, Susanna. I'm sorry I've been here, there and everywhere, but, you know, you are so sweet and haven't let go and still want me on your podcast, and here I am. Are you crazy? Because you've literally just got back from Tokyo, haven't you, from Japan? Yes, uh, night before last. Oh, my God. How are you dealing with all this travelling? I don't know. I think the thing is to think about where you are today and not project into next week. Otherwise, it all becomes terribly confusing. Mm, So true. And more exhausting, actually. And how's your wonderful book of of iconic photographs been? How's it been going? Because everyone wants a bit of you, don't they? It's been going so well. And it was rather sweet in Japan. I signed uh, 300 books in two days and I suggested that the Japanese, uh, because I don't speak Japanese, that they write their name on a little post-it note and then they'd file, go into files and then come in one at a time and I'd say, hello, Namiki, for example, and then they'd look at me in surprise that I know their name. Of course I do, I put on a piece of paper, and then sign a book for them. (laughs) And they are absolute, they were thrilled. It was really adorable to see just how happy they were. Was this your first time to Japan, or have you been before? No, I've been there. Before I've been there twice, having photographic exhibitions. Amazing. Because you've been taking photographs since you were a teenager, haven't you, pretty much? I think I started taking photographs about the same time as I started modelling. And, of course, made the most of my situation. Whenever I'd go for a photo shoot, I'd ask a photographer to help me use the camera properly. And was that how you learnt? That's how I learnt, what to look for, etc. And then, obviously, I went for um, a photographic course as well. Because you were photographed by some of the world's greatest photographers, you were taught by some of the world's greatest photographers. Yes. No wonder you're so bloody talented. But um, it's so hard to know where to start with you because you, you, you've you had so many, not incarnations, I wouldn't say incarnations, because, you know, from what I know, know you and we've got to know each other a little bit recently, but you've always stayed patty but you've all you've been through all these extraordinarily varied uh, um, lifestyles that you know partly you had the kind of fashion the photography the iconic bands that you were touring with is it possible to say, for you to say which one you enjoyed the most or which one inspired you the most what i mm-hmm. should really say is that When I was with George Harrison, I never was allowed Mm. to tour with the Beatles because it would have been far too difficult for uh, involving security 
was major in those days. And, mm. you know, they hadn't really got the whole thing, security, sorted out properly because they were unprepared, basically. Mm. And then when Eric and I got together, he asked me to come on tour and it was such an amazing experience. It was just mind-blowing to be able to be on the side of the stage very close to Eric, in a way, and the rest of the band, but then looking out into the audience and seeing these adoring faces and applause and, you know, I mean, it was a, such a thrilling experience. So this was Eric Clapton. Yeah. Who was your second husband after George Harrison. But with the Beatles, I can imagine it would have been a security risk for you because you'd have all those screaming teenage girls who probably would have wanted to kind of stab you in the eye with jealousy. Was, was that the kind of main reason? Because they didn't want to be seen as being attached to one person. Well, there is that. But also, you know, these fans become quite manic and blinded to an extent. All they want is to touch their heroes. So mm. anyone in the way, they just wouldn't notice you know, and they would rush at them. So it's a security matter for, you know, for the guys as well. Mm. I know a, a lot of fans didn't like me because they wanted to be me. Mm, of course. But what can I do? What can I say? Nothing. Yeah. I would get lots of letters from fans saying they either love me and, they, and George gets millions of letters saying how much they adore him and it, it's okay seeing me. So they were sort of slightly supportive. And then there was a, another group who were not supportive at all. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine in this day and age, thank God it was before social media because you would have been trolled constantly. I think so. Yeah. So going back, you're the eldest of four children and you spent your early life in Nairobi, Kenya, um, do you have many memories from that time? I do. My Swahili's slightly disappeared, um, but I absolutely adored it. I loved looking out onto endless plains that went on for miles. And every so often while you were just gazing, you'd suddenly see a little movement and realise that a giraffe is having some lunch, eating a tree, or there'd be little fleur, fluffy ears. There'd be a lioness and her cubs and... You know, it was absolutely magical. And this, of course, was in the late 50s, before tourism really started. So the animals were not only wild, but they weren't frightened and they wouldn't really attack anyone unless they were hungry, of course. So my we lived with my grandparents to begin with. And they had the most beautiful gardens that went on and on and on and into the wilderness, which would confuse some wild animals. They'd be in their wilderness and then just walking towards the house grass getting shorter and shorter and then uh, they sort of look at us and sort of walk back into areas that they knew we, we grew up sort of you know taking this for granted god how incredible but well how come your grandparents were out there did they have a farm or were they growing coffee what were they doing uh, my grandfather was in the british army in india and they lived in india and didn't really want to come back to England because he found it too cold. So they thought they'd live in Kenya. And they bought a, a really beautiful, sprawling bungalow with magnificent views and gardens. And so when we came out with Mummy and Daddy and my three siblings at the time, we stayed with them for about six months, I think. And then my father got a house. He was, he was head of the Nairobi Jockey Club and then he had a farm and you know, different things. It was an amazing time because I've always been fascinated by the Mathega Club, which is this sort of old colonial club there, which I'm sure you you are familiar with, and that whole, the whole white mischief um, era where Dells Broughton purportedly murdered um, the Earl of Errol, and it was this sort of almost like the 20s, which had disappeared in this country, but then the behaviour carried on in Nairobi. Did you, were you at the tail end of that? Did you, were you aware of that? Or was that kind of ancient history for you? I was only nine or 10. I knew that there was this wonderful, amazing, extraordinary story of social bad behaviour. And I kept saying to my mother, weren't you there? Why didn't you go to the parties? 
And he said, no, Daniel, no, 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 far too busy looking after the children. And so she had no stories to give me. What a shame. But you went to boarding school out there and you had a tough time, most notably because that's when you discovered that your parents had divorced. Is that right? I went to boarding school there for a year or two. And during that time, my mother met somebody else, must have divorced my father. And next thing I knew, I'd come home, well, come to where she was living. And she said, darling, I'd like you to meet your new father. As I shook his hand, I was full of utter guilt, thinking, what is daddy going to say about this? (laughs) And then I went back to boarding school and my father picked me up at the end of term. And I thought, oh, maybe that horrible thing has all gone away. But in fact, my mother then, with her new husband, caught the boat with my youngest sister and went to England. Oh, my God. Can you expand on this a bit? I mean, what, do you know how this happened? Did it happen over a very quick period of time? Well, I was never really privy to what on earth was going on. I never knew what was going on. And you never found out later? You never found out in retrospect what happened? I did. I found out that my stepfather wanted to introduce mummy to his parents and didn't want to shock his parents bringing over four children. So just one child was, to him, seemed not too big a story for them to cope with. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so there were left three of us. And then one sister went back, and then my brother went back, and then I went back. Arriving at Heathrow, I thought it was Disneyland. It was so full of light that, of course, I wasn't used to. And it seemed quite magical. Were you born in Nairobi? No, I was born in Somerset, but um, okay. we went to Nairobi when I was about four. Okay, so you had, what, how many, five years there? Yeah. So quite formative years. So your stepfather, you weren't too keen on, I read, and you and your siblings kind of grew very close because of that. Um, did they remain married, your, your mother and, and stepfather? My mother and stepfather had two boys, who are my brothers, whom I adore. Mm. Um, And then he went off with somebody else, leaving mummy with six children. I mean, what a shit, really. What a shit. So he left your mum and his two children that he'd had with her. Yeah, and all of us. Oh, my God. And and then what happened to him? Do you know? Yes, he he married this woman who... um, lived quite near us, and they had a child. She had three children with her husband, left them behind with him. And they were an outrageous couple. I mean, just outrageous. Anyway, she was German. And when I told my mother that she, this woman, (laughs) had got Alzheimer's, my mother couldn't help but laugh. And anyway, (laughs) her, her Alzheimer's got worse and worse, that she could no longer communicate with my stepfather because she couldn't remember English. She could only speak German. Oh, my goodness. Sod's law. What goes around? Exactly. That's unbelievable. So this cad, his behaviour matched that of the inhabitants of Happy Valley. You're Mm. right. But I must say, he was incredibly handsome. He was very good looking. But he wasn't really fun. So I'm sure they wouldn't have included him in their group. No, and nor should they have done. So, yeah, your your mum remarried. And then at this point, you were in your early teens. And did clothes start to feature much in your life at that time? Because you'd grown up in the 50s, which is obviously bleak and grey and conservative, um, and before the cultural change. So were you interested in clothes at the tail end of the 50s? Or did it really, that love of fashion, blossom in the 60s? I think in the 60s, and I used to go to the King's Road, and there was a wonderful um, antique market, not the one that's there now. This was another one on the first floor. And there were a couple of girls from Australia who were selling the most beautiful 1940 chiffon dresses, and they were heaven. And when I saw them, I thought, this is it. I absolutely adore these dresses. And so I'd buy one or two and cut them a bit if I wanted shorter. I'd awful thing to do I know but anyway I'd cut them and make them short and they were just glorious you see the thing is in the early 60s there was only Mary Quant beavering away 
for England. But in France, of course, you know, they were really only concerned about couture collections. And they designed for, you know, very rich ladies. And in London, we didn't have anything or anyone who supported mm. us except for Mary Quant, who's, uh, who finally, in the early 60s, her skirt started getting shorter. So everyone would go to Mary. And, gr- and great designs, I think some of her dresses had kind of geometric designs to them, which were really lovely and interesting. And then Ozzy Clark started appearing on the scene. We all adored Ozzy. He was mad and eccentric, but he could cut beautifully and cut, do a bias cut, which, as you mm. know, Susanna suits every figure. Very clever. Yeah, because a bias cut is great. Unless you've got big hips, it's not so good because it clings to the hips. You were quite capacious then, so... Because you had, obviously, Twiggy and, you know, Mary Quant, she designed, in my opinion, more for the kind of flat-chested girl. Yeah. Did you find that an issue? Did you, were you kind of, because you've got a good pair now, let's be honest. And um, did you, have they grown over the years or were they quite small in the 60s? Well, as I wasn't really eating much, they got smaller and I was really pleased I got down to under size eight which is actually quite small. So yes, my tits sort of got smaller too. So I wasn't too bad for a Mary Quant dress. Okay. And you it sounds like you were almost creating your own fashion by adapting those wonderful chiffon dresses, which actually the, 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 the 40s was good for a, a womanly figure, but you were adapting it by making them shorter as a nod to the 60s. So... Were, were a lot of people, a lot of girls at that time doing that, kind of just creating their own, own designs because there was a lack of choice? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that Ozzy started thinking about that 40s look. And if you look back at some of his collections mm. now, he will have, you know, like a little bit of a wide mm. shoulder and maybe yeah, a peplum and all those sort of things that they did in the 20s and 30s. Mm. And, of course, using wonderful material, too. So he used a lot of that kind of wool crate, didn't he, Didn't he? which was had a little bit of stretch in it, and then those beautiful covered buttons with the little loops. And, I mean, they've still... They've, they've stood the test of time. Do you have any still? Can I come and raid your wardrobe? <laughs> no, I don't. I, I did have a, a fantastic sort of onesie jumpsuit from, from Aussie, that was a rusty colour and absolutely beautiful. Mm. And on the inside was silk. So when you turned over the collar, it was shiny silk and very low cut, which was a bit difficult for me. have to bring out the safety pins, of course. And um, that was glorious. Otherwise, do you know what I used to do? I used to lend my clothes to girlfriends or friends of friends, trusting they would bring them back. But, you know, they very rarely did. And then I can't remember who I'd lent them to. Whoever yeah. borrows remembers, and whoever is the owner yeah, forgets. so true. Let that be a lesson, listeners. The same with books. <laughs> and you can't actually lend your, a book to somebody, put your name in it as if you're still at school. Mm. No, yeah, that's so true. Books and, and money, actually. It's like if you lend money, never expect to get it back. And music. Lending mm. your music, CDs, whatever, never get them back. Tents are the worst because my, my kids go to festivals and then, you know, their friends will say, can we borrow a tent? And I go, well, you are never going to give it back, are you? And they, no, no, yes, we will, yes, we will. And sure enough, you know, it never comes back. But um, in the, so at that time in the 60s, who were your influences apart from Mary Quant and Ozzy Clark and I assume Bieber? came into it as well. Was there anyone who was inspired you clothing-wise? I loved what Norma Kamali was doing in New York. And I loved uh, Folan Tuffin. Oh, I don't know that. Oh, they were adorable. The two of them were very, very good designers. They had a little boutique shop off Carnaby Street. And they were very good. And um, who else? Um, hmm. I mean, was there anyone like, I don't know, I'm trying to think, like Sandy Shaw or Dusty Springfield? I mean, the w- women weren't really at the forefront at that time, so it must have been quite hard to find a role model. 
Yeah, I mean, you were doing what Jean Shrimpton was doing and you were busy influencing everyone else. <laughs> well, I, do, I don't know. Uh, I, I, when I first started looking at magazines, which was quite later on, well, when I was 16, 17, 17, and I saw my first Vogue and Harper's and all those magazines, Glossies, and Jean Shrimpton was in quite a lot of them. She became my hero. I wanted to be Jean because she was so glorious and looked fantastic, had the best figure, best face, best hair, best everything, and best photographer boyfriend, David yeah. Bailey, right? So, you know, she, she couldn't lose. She was on to a winning streak. So what was your first modelling job and how did that come about? Yeah, I think it was with John French. John French was a 50s classical photographer, very tall, frightfully English, and he was photographing a whole bunch of models from the 50s. So they were all very elegant, very aristocratic, and the types that would just wouldn't go wouldn't dream of going anywhere without their pearls. And you know, so loads of them, about 30 of them, and then me, the youngest, newest model, wearing something from uh who is it? Thea Porter, the most beautiful square-necked silk dress. And I'm sitting in the front with, you know, my hands around my knees, I think. And John lined us all up and then did all the lighting. And then he went back to where the tripod was and his assistant, and he looked through the lens and his assistant was standing nearby him. And then he walked up to all of us and like a conductor, he said, one two, three, now, and the, and the assistant would click the shutter. Oh. <laughs> it's fantastic. But you must have really stood out because your look represented the kind of new 60s. And like you say, those 50s models were so angular and almost a bit masculine in a way, and yet you were so kind of pretty and feminine and wholesome. It's like you must have stuck out like a... A sore thumb amongst that lot. I think so, and I think really that look that I had, Twiggy had, and a few other girls had, was um, an image of the youthfulness in us. We didn't have the burden that the older models must have had from their parents, because the war had just finished when they'd started, you see. And so there was a lot of um, deprivation, food-wise and clothes-wise, in fact, in every arena. And by the time we came along, I think we all, like a Zietgeist, realised something was happening. Something was going to change. And we were part of the change. So our look was very different from the older models. And we liked different clothes. We didn't want to look like our mothers at all. Mm. We wanted to rebel. And rebel we did in every area. And, of course, if you think about it, Susanna, this is really the start of the... Arts suddenly bubbling up and coming up to the top. If you think of people like David Hockney and all the designers and the music makers and the filmmakers, photographers, the only area I think where the 60s didn't affect them at all was architecture, which I think was absolutely appalling. If you look at 60s buildings now, nasty, mean little windows. And um, mm. I can only suppose that the students weren't as progressive as the art students. I don't know. That is so true when you think of all those sort of um, council blocks and you're, you're so right, it was kind of almost brutalist in a way, but without the grandeur that brutalism encapsulated. But also there was, I mean, you know, this is a bit of a cliche for me to say it, but I'm just, I can't get this image of you with the kind of 50s models and then you, because... They, like you say, were very much like their mothers. It was uber sophisticated in the 50s, buttoned up. And then along come you guys with this sort of air of freedom and innocence and wonderment. I think that the older girls hadn't really any time to have fun and enjoy life. They had to become mm. serious much younger than we did. So for us, it was like an extended childhood. We were bringing our childhood into the fashion world, into the creative world. You know how children can be so creative left on their own and they just do things. And I think, you know, we were very, the 
child was very much still in us when in our sort of late teens, early mm. 20s. Did your parents have any expectation for you? Were they ambitious on your behalf or were you just like, you know, off you go, Patty, do what you want, you know, go off, have fun and get married? I mean, what was their expectation? I went to one of those typical sort of girls' boarding schools run by nuns and, you know, there was not really much expectation from any of us except to marry well. And that was it, as if there was no other choice in life. It was desperate, I thought. And I certainly didn't want to be a secretary, somebody's secretary. The idea of doing the same thing every day would drive me absolutely crackers. Mm. And my mother got me a job, finally. She said, listen, I've got somebody who's one of the top people at Elizabeth Arden. They said they'd look after you. And that didn't mean anything. It just meant I went to Bond Street to their main place, and I just sat around looking at magazines. Then I discovered how glorious, glorious modelling must be. And the woman came in one day and she said to me, Patty, have you ever thought about modelling? And you know, I said, Susanna, I had to tell a fib. I said, no. And she said, I think you could be great. Come to me in Farringdon Road when you can next week, and I'll get the photographer to photograph you. And that's how it really happened for me. I'm not saying it was easy peasy because then the hard work had to start by finding photographers to photograph me in order to have a nice portfolio to go take around. Were there agencies in the in the 60s, like Models One and... Yeah, there were probably about four model agencies. Cherry mm-hmm. Marshall, who I went to, and there was another woman whose name I can't remember, but her agency was really for deportment, how to get in and out of sports cars you know, being driven by handsome, rich young men, how you put your bottom in first and then swing the legs over and inside. Oh, my God. For fuck's sake. Sorry, I can't. That was the the agency. And that's what they taught you. So literally, it was like with the book on the head and probably holding a pad and a pen so you could take notes for your managing director. I remember the name now, Lucy Clayton. And they were still around. I think they might still be around, Lucy Clayton. I hope so. I mean, I remember that because that was an option for me that my parents gave me. You've literally reminded me. And that was, yeah, Lucy Clayton, it was. It was about deportment, but you could learn to type as well, or you could be a model, or you could learn to cook. So it was it was like a sort of finishing school, but there was this modelling side too. Yes. So I suppose as modelling became more desirable. She must have dropped all the other elements of her agency. No, she didn't. Trust me. Oh, really? But it is remarkable. I mean, I've never really thought about the 60s in any great depth, because for me, I was born in 62. So I was too young. It kind of passed me by. But for you to have done what you did, because there were no female icons, I mean, I I had to scrape some together in the 70s. So Jermaine Greer and Joan Bakewell and Margaret Thatcher, not because of her politics, but she was, there was a woman running the country. But in the 60s, there was no one. So the fact that you girls did what you did, you really were pioneers, weren't you? Do you know when I, I hadn't really thought about it, but I think you're right. We were. There was no outstanding hero for us. No, and, and if there were, yes, there might have been actresses, but they were, you know, a woman could really only be a kind of, a sort of be titillating or a married woman. There was nothing in between. You couldn't be an intellectual. I mean, it's just shocking. See, we've got a lot to thank you for. <laughs> I tell you who really was, who stood out, was Julie Christie for us. Yes. We all adored Julie Christie. But only one person, really. That's ridiculous, isn't it? It really is ridiculous. So, like, you know, we said you were you were photographed by the great and the good and in every important magazine at the time. And obviously it was pre-Me Too. Were you kind of aware of any um, sort of blatant sexism? Did you ever feel unsafe or were you more streetwise because there wasn't a Me Too movement? There wasn't a Me Too movement. I think that guys and men weren't so outrageous in those days. There were the odd ones, 
who wanted to do a little pinch on your bottom, bottom when we were modelling. But we, as models, would all warn each other about so-and-so's assistant or a photographer. So we were all, we all warned each other. So you knew who'd say piss off to. Mm. But do you think I do you think you were you were more streetwise than young women are today? Because I think you must have been because you had to have, you know, we're all so protected and you know you've, everyone's got their phones and I feel so sorry for men. You know they can't they can't do anything without being kind of called out as a sex pest. But for you. I mean, you must have had a bit of alley cat in you, which I think is a good thing. And that's what I've tried to instill in my daughters. Well, maybe I do. I mean, you know, some couple of male friends would laugh and say that I'm such a tomboy because mm. I had three brothers and maybe I was a tomboy. So I would like to hang out with the guys, not because they would fancy me. I didn't even think about that. We always became friends. So that was my initial idea to make friends with, with people. And with the boys, so it never okay. really, it never really went meant further than that. Except one yeah. boy became my boyfriend, but no, I never really had any issues. Maybe I wasn't sexy enough. No, no. now you're fishing <laughs> for compliments. I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, Patty. <laughs> for God's sake, I don't oh know. It was, God. you know, darling. It was a different era. I think yeah. men and boys had grown up to have some sort of respect for the girls. I think they had respect and they were more masculine. And I, I mean, we're really going off on a tangent now, but I think because men are emasculated to a certain degree now, they become more aggressive because they don't know how else to be and to get noticed. I, mean, I know. I really feel sorry for men. I seriously do. Because they're not, they're not allowed to be men, proper men, men. any longer. Because then they're yeah. attacked. And I just think, oh, God, where's the, where are the men? Where have all the men gone? It really is that. I'm sorry, women have sent them off, sent them away. So you've went, during your modelling, you then found your way onto the set of A Hard Day's Night in 1964. What role were you playing? What were you cast as? A schoolgirl school school fan. So I was in school uniform. Now, what's amusing, Susanna, when I was in Japan a couple of days ago, I was signing books for all sorts of people and um, suddenly three giggling girls came through and they all dressed like me, like I did in, on the train, in the film. And they thought it was the funniest thing and they had blonde wigs on and they were hysterical. How adorable. That is amazing. And how old were they? 14, 15. But isn't that incredible that your legacy has carried over to the new generation? Why do you think that is? I think I probably represent somebody who is fun and uh, I, I think I represent a sort of freedom and enjoyment mm. of life, which is what they mm. all want. They don't want to be depressed. They don't want to be worried about the world, and which, of course, they are. No, we are, we are very lucky to have lived, you know, through the times we have. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Um, but so you met George on the set of um, A Hard Day's Night. Which was a funny and... thing. My agent phoned, I was working at Bailey's, agent phoned and said that I had a, a casting to go to. So they gave me the address and I went along because I had my portfolio of photographs. And when it was my turn to go in, I recognised one of the people sitting around the table, Dick Lester, who I'd done some TV commercials with. So they looked at me, I didn't say anything, and I went home. And my agent phoned me late afternoon saying that I got a part, I mustn't tell anyone, I got a part in the Beatles film. 
I said, I think you've got that wrong. I haven't even seen me yet. And she said, well, no, that was what the interview was for earlier in the day. But you mustn't tell anyone. And I panicked and I said, well, I never wanted to be an actress. I'd be hopeless. I can't act. And they said, don't worry. You've only got to say one word and dress up as a schoolgirl. And I thought, well, that sounds, that sounds quite easy. I'm sure I can pull that one off. <laughs> <laughs> and was it um, with you two, was it love at first sight, do you think? I mean, did he spot you in the crowds or did you spot him? And were you, how much of a fan of the Beatles were you? I liked their music and, um, you know, I liked a lot of music, but I didn't zoom in on them. Okay. And so was it you, so he must have spotted you in amongst the group or did you just start chatting or...? No, we were on the train and the train took off to Cornwall and back. And Dick Lesser did all the filming on the train that in those few hours. And uh, I don't remember this, but George apparently asked me to marry him almost straight away. Now, it obviously would seem completely ridiculous to me that it, it not only, it didn't sink in for one second, and that's why I don't remember it. However, on the way back, as we were nearing Paddington Station, George said to me, would I uh, come out with him that evening? And I said, I'm so sorry, I can't, I'm seeing my boyfriend. And his face dropped, Susanna, and I thought, oh, God, poor guy, perhaps they haven't met anyone in London yet. You know, I don't know how long they've been here. So I said, come with us. And he, he said, no, thanks. <laughs> I mean, that is, I can imagine you doing that, Patty, because it's like, I mean, but were you not, so, okay, let's, put, let's wind the movie forward. How old were you at the oh, time? 19. Okay, so you were 19. So let's take a 19-year-old girl. I'm trying to think who, let's say Harry Styles, for example, is making a video and Harry Styles says, will you marry me? And then the girl doesn't really register. Um, and then going back says, do you want to have dinner tonight? No girl in their right mind would say, actually, I'm seeing my boyfriend. These were the Beatles. Well, I know, I was very shy and obviously insecure about myself and didn't want to put myself in a, you know, in a situation, I don't know. I think I just, I think I panicked and didn't want to. It was like, it was too much for me, the idea of mm. going out with George. It was too overwhelming. So conveniently, I've got a boyfriend. Okay, and you did have a boyfriend or was that another lie? No, I only lied once. Okay. <laughs> I had a boyfriend. And in fact, he took the cover photograph on my new book. Did he? So who was that? Because it's such a beautiful profile. Yeah, he, his name's Eric Swain. He always thought okay. that he could be Bailey and I should be Shrimpton. You know, second class. <laughs> Hardly. Uh, anyway, so uh, he died a few years ago. But mm. I think that my publishers really liked that photograph. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture, that. You're in profile and you have this kind of slight beehive. Your hair looks short. I don't know if it was. It was short, yeah. And you're looking down and the lighting is so exquisite because, of course, there wasn't airbrushing or anything then. It was all done with lighting. Yeah, and all done mm. with film, not digital. Mm. So what happened to Eric when and how did George manage to magpie his way in to your heart? Eric said to me, before I started filming, I bet you fall in love with Paul McCartney. <laughs> Isn't that funny? So then when I told him okay. that, you know, I was going to dump him, and I dumped him not knowing I'd ever see George again. Really? Yeah. Oh, so you dumped him. Did you just say, look, I'm not in love with you, or not, can we stop going out? Yes. Okay. And then a week later, Cherry Marshall phoned and said, that the press office had phoned her and they wanted to take photographs of the girls that were on the train with the Beatles. So here, I'm going to meet up with George and I can quite honestly say, no, I don't have a boyfriend. So that did he then say, do you want to go out tonight again? Yeah. He was quite persistent, wasn't he, young George? Yeah. You see, of course, in those days, Susanna, we didn't have mobile phones, so we couldn't contact each other. I think the director, Dick Lester, 
set the whole thing up. Ah, he probably did. He was, he was the little Cupid in this scene. How adorable. Because we've talked about this, you and I, and, and you always you talk about George so being such a wonderful person and that he was the love of your life. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you feel still feel that? Yeah, I think about him often. You know, mm. he was such a gentle soul. He was a very gentle soul. But, you know, like like anybody and everybody, and particularly creative people, he could just go off the rails and go crazy. Mm. And you just have to remember this is not the real George. It's mm. difficult. Yeah, it must have been very hard. But you were the one who got into trans trans how do i say it transcendental meditation how do i say that trans no, transcendental transcendental meditation um first so how did that come about well when the beatles went on tour to australia i saw a little advertisement in the sunday times saying if anyone wants to learn how to meditate tm transcendental meditation come to this london address uh, where we have teachers so I phoned Mary Lee's a girlfriend of mine, said, do you want to go? And off we went and we learned how to meditate. So when George and the Beatles came back from Australia, I told George about this form of meditation and he was kind of interested. And then I suppose like about a week later, Paul rang and said, there's this guy called Maharishi coming to give a lecture at the Hilton in London. Let's go and listen to him. So we all went. Maharishi couldn't believe his luck. Can you imagine? Suddenly he was inundated with press. <laughs> so do you still meditate today? Not every day. I'm a bit naughty, but um, I do like meditating. It does make the day di different. Okay. I've never got it. I tried. I, I kind of think you have to have patience, but maybe you learn patience through meditating. I think also if you know in your mind you're just taking only 20 minutes out of your day, which is very short, mm. it's like a minimal um, percentage, and just know that's what you're going to do before you get up and do whatever you're going to do. Maybe after you've cleaned your teeth, you know, just sit down, mm. meditate, and then, woof, you've got the whole day ahead. Maybe I should persevere a little bit. But um, did you... so? The whole kind of meditation, because that was another kind of fashion opportunity, I guess, because you spent six weeks in India with um, Ravi Shankar. So did you pick up the kind of in Indian influence there in terms of dressing and the colour? Because, you you know, when I think of you, I always think of you as someone who loves colour. Is that where it came from? Yes, I think you're probably right. When George and I went to India with... Uh, Ravi Shankar for the very first time we stayed in the Taj Mahal Hotel in Mumbai and just looking out of our bedroom window opening the windows the sun was slightly setting and everybody comes out to greet the evening in the most beautiful coloured saris sort of purples and crimsons and um, chartreuse and greens and, you know, colours of every colour in silk. And a little breeze just picks up a bit of fabric here and there. And they're all congregating. And it's the most beautiful sight for the eyes to try and absorb all of this joyous colour and wonderful people and the, in front of the gates of India. It was mind-blowing. And it will, that image will always remain with me. I can imagine. And then, and again, you know, coming out of the 50s, which was sort of drab and houndstooth and, you know, grey flannels. And to, to then, no wonder so many people were so attracted to India. Because everything here was sort of John Major grey, wasn't it, really? Absolutely. And it wasn't going anywhere. It was all a full stop. There were no mm. commas anywhere, you know, and to carry on. No, there's nothing, there's nothing really to look forward to. And I think the thing I looked forward to, besides India, was America, thinking America's really got it. America seems to mm. be really cool. Mm. And I love seeing photographs of those beautiful 50s cars with the, with the winged, you know, the wings at the back of the uh, mm. back wheels. I don't know what I'm talking about. Like old Cadillac. Yeah, the Cadillac. Yeah. yeah. But you're so right because it was. You're so right. Why? Because America was 
colourful during the 50s because you had the you had Knickerbocker glories, you had all the kind of golf outfits, you had the cars, the Chevrolets and the whatever other cars. And Marilyn Monroe. And Marilyn Monroe, and they were colourful and all the watch cheerleaders. Exactly. The, it was it was the varsity, it was all colour. So how did we be, become so grey? It was squashed and grey. Squashed yeah. and mean and grey and mm. miserable and nothing to look forward to. Mm. And then so, started breaking okay. out. Do you think there's been another moment like that, that that's kind of even touched on the 60s since then, where there's been this kind of metamorphosis? No, I don't think so. Not in the, not in the same way. There has become a metamorphosis which is really, I think, really depressing, whereby people are so worried and upset and anxious and there's no one's brave any longer. It's all too frightening. And, and I think, come on, you know, get on with it. But no, nobody wants to get on with anything. and They don't want to fight. They don't want to argue because, you know, I don't know. It's so completely against me and my thinking and you know, what I'm all about. I can't imagine being bored. I can't imagine yeah. not being excited about, you know, what's in the garden, what's growing, or, you know, or if I'm going to see some new friends or meet old friends. You know, there's always something lovely to look forward to. I can't imagine not being lucky enough to look forward to anything, which I feel people are sinking into that sort of modus operandi now. I don't know why. Maybe they think there's no hope. They can't see anything in the future. Yeah, I think that is that. And I think that people are scared to form their own opinions. This is awful. Today. I know. If you're not prepared, like you say, to put your head above the parapet and voice an opinion, then... There's no communication. And so without communication, what do we have? God, this really is depressing. But it is depressing. It's depressing, you know, and it's all dishonest. Mm. Because people can't be honest because they're not allowed to because they're so frightened. So without honesty, you have no real communication with someone. Do you think that's reflected in fashion today? I don't know about today's fashion. I really don't. Like it, I think one thing I just can't bear about fashion, which has been there for the last few years, which is so not me, they have the waist right up here, just under the breast. I mean, when is that? When when can we slide down again? I hate. Oh what my are god, they Patty! Doing? Do you know what? That is so true. That all those fucking prairie dresses that yes. you would have looked fabulous in in the sixties, but you know you got big tits like me, and. It's like you see them everywhere. And I actually, this is very indiscreet of me, but I'm going to tell you, I because I think Samra Cameron's um, line is called Seffin. She designs, David Cameron's wife designs clothes. And some, you know, she does great suits and sort of trouser suits and stuff. But I emailed her and I said, can you drop the waist no. on your dresses? Did you? Because we're not, your target audience isn't teenage girls. You know, we are middle-aged women and we just look like mutton trying to be lambs when we, we wear a, a kind of, you know, empire like under the boob. I so agree with you. It's my absolute 101 bugbear. Really? And it's still every year I look in the shop, in all the shops, still there. I just walk out. I will it's so not, annoying. I will not wear those stupid dresses. I so agree. Well, we can't. We just look like we're wearing a nighty at our, our age. It's ridiculous. Or a sort of maternity dress. It's very unattractive. Annoying. So I sent um, Samantha Cameron this email um, complaining about the height of the waist, and I haven't heard a single word. I think she was probably very insulted. Oh, really? Yeah. She doesn't know what to say, does she? She doesn't know what to say. But anyway, I, I totally get your bugbear. Let's get back on track. So after George, you married Eric Clapton. And with him, you had a real influence on Eric's music, didn't you? Because he wrote, well, at least two songs. What was it? Layla and Wonderful Tonight. Uh, you know, probably his two best-known songs. Yes, I would say so. 
Did that resonate or does something, is that more water off your duck's back? No, because, I mean, I absolutely adore both those songs for different reasons. But Wonderful Tonight was written while I was there. In a way, we were at home and, jo- and Eric's playing his guitar as usual. And I said, listen, we are invited to this party. I can't remember whose. We're invited to a party. We must go. I'm going to go upstairs and get dressed. So I went up and I thought, I don't know what to wear. And I tried on a dress, and then some trousers, another dress, hair up, hair down, what to do, jewellery, no. You know, the, the bed was full of clothes, taken off, thrown down, try on something else. And then finally I went downstairs, and da-da, here I am. And Eric said, listen to this. And he sang Wonderful Tonight. So he, while I was in a tiz about what to wear, he had written this beautiful song. Oh, my God. What did you feel? Were you kind of like... Well, I was so relieved he wasn't angry with me, first of all. For being so late. For being so late that I could hardly listen. And then when I started listening, I thought, this is so fabulous. This is a wonderful song. I loved it immediately. And do you know what? That was probably in Mm 1975-ish. This year, 2023, Jimmy Page told me we were going to his party. It was his party. And I did. I forgot. Really? Yes. How amazing! God, you see, you really were living amongst the last of the rock gods. Yeah. Weren't you? Yes. Okay, so Layla and Wonderful Tonight, two incredible songs. But then George wrote something for you as well. Yes, he did. This is at the time when the Beatles were all sort of okay-ish together. And uh, they'd been in the studio with George Martin and they all started shuffling out. And George waited behind and then he said to George Martin, George, can I just play you something? So I didn't want to play it in front of the others. And George said, yeah, fine. So he played something and George said, you have to record it. This is so good. Which gave George Harrison the confidence to the next day when they went into the studio to record it. So you were travelling all over the place and did you have anything which you always took with you that you'd consider to be a comfort blanket? Something that, you know, that always came with you? Because I was sent to boarding school at a young age, I always had my teddy with me. Now, Teddy knows absolutely everything. He is still alive, by the way, in case you want to know. What's he called? Name him. He's just Teddy. Oh, okay, it's Teddy, yeah. So you've still got Teddy. I've still got Teddy. And I would tell Teddy all my secrets. He came to all the boarding schools with me, and that's that. And I sort of must have got over it. So now I don't need a security blanket. Since Teddy and I said goodbye, although he's still here in a chair, um, I don't need him (laughs) any longer, and I don't need a substitute Teddy either. Okay, so Teddy is, you know, he's your safety net. Yes, when you need it. Okay, I can completely identify with that. Um, at, I'm sorry, Jane. Being at boarding school taught me two things. Mm-hmm. Insecurity and independence. Okay. Look, she's. I'm just telling you, Patty's looking quite pleased with this now. She's looking quite pleased with that comment because, okay, they're two very different things and you would think they'd cancel each other out, so to expand... Professor Patty, expand. So, insecurity. I am still insecure. It's very odd. Even now, if I'm going on a plane on my own, I feel as if I'm being sent away. So I can still feel insecure. And independent, I won't let anybody break me. Okay, and you think that's that? those were the two things that came out of boarding school? Mm. Those two, uh, yeah, I, I can completely you get identify it? with that yeah because I was so homesick yeah, at boarding school and that I still I don't funny enough I don't have that Sunday night feeling anymore I used to get it and you know it, yeah until all my life I've I've had that feeling yes that kind of fear of leaving somewhere it's rejection isn't it as if you're being yeah rejection at an abandonment. Abandonment. Oh, it's awful. Mm. I think we never get over those completely, those emotions. No. 
But they make us independent and they make us strong. Quite, exactly. So no Teddy on tour. No Teddy on tour. Have you got any photographs of Teddy? Do you take any pictures of him, by the way? Have you taken his portrait? No, I haven't. I think our, our really intimate relationship ended when I left school. And he'd done okay. his job. He'd done his job as a good bear and looked after me. <laughs> oh, my God. So he's never travelled, because you've travelled. Not only did you travel with Eric, but you travelled with your photography because you have exhibited all over the world. And in your photography, what's what or who has been your most interesting and memorable subject? I think maybe a photograph I took of a girl called Fiona, who's Scottish. And the story is that um, I wanted to go and see her a friend, Charlie Roth, who lives in Cornwall. And Charlie was, I thought, a great photographer. And I had nothing to do one day. And I said, Charlie, can I come down to Cornwall for a few lessons from you? All right, Patty, don't be late, was his answer. So, oh, foot down, all the way down to Cornwall. Arrived at his sort of little studio house. And he had his tripod and film and bags and everything. A couple of beautiful models. Come on, come on, you're late. So I trotted along behind him with my camera and bags. And we went to this beach with the most enormous waves. And his models were going to stand in front of the big waves for a um, uh, thing, something. So his girlfriend, Fiona, said to me, do you want to photograph me? And we were on a beach, a few people eating their sandwiches. I said, yes, I, I'd love to. So I was bending down and I was putting the film into my um, Hasselblad winding it on, I looked up, she'd taken all her clothes off, and all the people on the, on the beach, oh, eyes open, stopped eating their sandwiches, couldn't believe their luck. And I said, I thought, better quickly, otherwise this might all disappear. So I said, sweetie, just sit on that, that rock over there, I can just see it now, and whoosh your hair back, and that wonderful kind of pose. And this would be great. So I did that, took lots of photographs. When I went home, in my dark room, I processed the film, the last shot, Fiona pushed her hair back and a wave had come in and hit the way the rock behind her. So it looks as if she is spouting the water. So that oh was so exciting to see it. Oh my goodness. So just the right moment and every so much movement it sounds like yeah. you have in that picture. Yeah. Amazing. Now, have you had a major wardrobe malfunction ever? Ozzy Clark made me a dress. On the last dresses he made, a few of us decided to help Ozzy. He was really on his uppers and lived in this nasty little flat, had a ghastly um, Brazilian boyfriend who eventually stabbed him to death. Anyway, so I went and Ozzy came What? To... Is that what happened to Ozzy Clark? He, he was murdered? Yeah. I didn't know that. So he made this lovely red dress for me. And yeah. you know, he's obviously working so hard on it. And I was living in a flat overlooking the Thames. And Ozzy turned up in the taxi with the big dress, and it came out, he came out, and we gave him a drink, thanks, Ozzy, and then I put the dress on, got into the taxi, and I think, why are my stockings tearing all the time? Ozzy left several needles in the hem. <laughs> <laughs> so you had snagged tights. Definitely, yeah. Oh, my goodness, that's too good. And have you met anyone, Patty, whose style has blown you away? I don't know. I think style and elegance are quite sort of quite similar and sort of are in the same boat. But I there's somebody called Valentine Cecil. Do you know Valentine? Oh yes, I do. Yes. He always looks very elegant. He's incredibly polite and elegant and always looks stylish, I think. And okay. rock and roll wise, I'm just trying to think who dresses well. I think Elton dresses very well. And of course, the most stylish man with Charlie Watts. Yes. He had I, his I shoes made, his suits made, and always looked precisely glorious. I would absolutely agree with that. Do you have a dress or an outfit which you think of as your birthday suit? Like something that really, you know, is fail safe. I'm going to look and feel great in that. Yes. It's a red evening dress. It's long and slightly clinging and has lots of beadwork on it. Mm. And it is glorious and it's glamorous and I feel great in it 
And red, of course, is passion and energy. And I just love it. Sounds fabulous. Well, Patty, you have been a joy, as predicted, to speak to, as I knew you would be. And thank you so, so much. And um, I hope we see each other soon because I always love hearing your stories and chatting to you. You're an inspiration. Susanna, it's been such fun talking to you. Really great fun. Thank you for inviting me on your podcast. Thank you. Oh, my God. I don't know about you, but I felt like we barely scratched the surface of Patty's life, career and incredible stories. If she's up for it, I might have to ask her back for part two. Now, speaking of guys who know their way around a guitar, here's Duo with Manitas.
fantastic. You can find Duo's new album Destino at duoguitarmusic.com and follow them at Duo Guitar Music. You can find Patty on Twitter at the Patty Boyd, Insta at Patty Boyd Official, Facebook at Official Patty Boyd, and on her website pattyboyd.co.uk. Her latest book, which by the way is unbelievable, My Life in Pictures, is out now. All the links are in our show notes. Finally, you can find us at MyWardMal on our socials, on our website at mywardmal.com, and of course, please subscribe, rate and review us on your chosen podcast platform. Ugh, that's a mouthful. That's it. Thank you so much again to Patty, to Duo, and of course to you for listening. Catch up soon. Until then, my wardrobe is officially closed. 